Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45. I've uh, I've designed these outlines for the last two and hopefully this chapter uh, to to each night be a chapter in and of itself. Uh, This one's the longest of the three, so I'm not sure we'll get through the entire thing and still be able to pray at the end. Uh, And I do definitely want to give time to that. So bear with me. I'm I'm preferring to not rush through it, so we'll see what the Lord gives us. But we're going to take a few verses at a time, as we usually do. And in Genesis 45, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first. And I've entitled this message, as I have the last three, uh, a verse that comes right out of the text, God did send me before you to preserve life. And of course, these are the words of Joseph. Uh, But I feel that verse in particular really speaks to the typology that we see, uh, boy, just throughout the last three chapters. But Genesis 45, verses 1 through 3, it reads as follows, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And this word troubled uh, is also translated amazed or frightened. They were amazed, and you can imagine, uh, they were amazed and frightened. While uh, it seems, it's an interesting lesson that you kind of find hidden in all of this, is that remember the last 24 hours have been very bizarre, all the way back to the meal where they were set and Uh, an age order, and then this thing that just happened out on the road where they had their money again and the silver cup, and and again, they're being searched in order of age as though somebody seemingly already knew. Uh, And and you would think, and I know this is a big reveal, like a soap opera type thing, but you would think, suddenly, here's peace. It all makes sense. Of course, they knew how old we were. It's been Joseph all along. You'd almost imagine there'd be some peace that sets in that, well, these things make sense now. That's just not how it is, is it? When things make sense, I mean, think back to the weirdness since 2020. If somebody actually told us where COVID came from, if somebody actually told us how our present president is our present president, would we really have peace? Or would it just seem even more real than it already did? Joseph made himself known unto his brethren, and there's something else here we don't want to lose. He's doing this in Hebrew. They don't say this in the text, but he's speaking to them for the first time without an interpreter. So what we see in verse 3, that he's made himself known unto his brethren, he's doing this in their tongue. And it's the first time they've ever heard this man, this Lord of Egypt, speaking in Hebrew. Been quite the show thus far. There's been an interpreter around every single time they've engaged with him. Acts chapter 7 verse 13 says, And at the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known, made known unto Pharaoh. And we see the house of Pharaoh here is this entire conversation, and, and we'll get to Pharaoh before the end of this chapter. A pattern begins here in which the nation of Israel continually rejects God uh, and his plan for them the first time, and then receives it the second time. This is where we see this incident the first time in, in, in biblical studies, but it happens a few more times. The same is true of Moses. Uh, if you're there in Acts, a little bit later in Acts 7, and this is, of course, Stephen's great uh, discourse, his great sermon that he's given to the hung jury there in Acts chapter 7. I know we're not used to flipping past the, the Old Testament, New Testament boundary line 
in this particular study. But Acts 7 is beautiful for a lot of reasons. Probably the greatest sermon in the entire Bible that's not delivered by Jesus himself. And it's essentially delivered by a man who's most assuredly going to die by the end of it. And he's laying out for them there in verse 13 that they rejected God's plan for the nation of Israel with Joseph. And then here in verses 35 and 36, he says they did it again with Moses. Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed them, uh, had showed wonders and signs to the, in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And the same, of course, as Stephen goes on, but we won't go there with him tonight. Uh, later there in Acts 7, the same would be true of Jesus. Uh, which I had finished, uh, I showed Sister Terry, it's, it's a mess. Uh, the, hand, the reason I type it all up, she's seen the handwriting tonight. I lay out the Lord's chronological study by hand first, and I finally finished all of it, and there's a lot. Uh, but we're real close to the Passion Week. We're real close to seeing this exact thing that Stephen's talking about at the end of Acts 7, where the nation of Israel once again is offered the plan of God and rejects it, and it's Christ Jesus the whole time. We need to note here as well that uh, there is a short note in verse 2 that Joseph's open weeping before his brethren was heard of the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh. That's how it's mentioned there in the first three verses. And we'll see evidence later in the chapter that Pharaoh was not shocked nor alarmed by this, which uh, again speaks to the testimony, the work ethic, and the character of who Joseph was. That you'll see it in a moment. Pharaoh was not shocked that Joseph had brethren back in his home country. And he even embraces it, uh, embraces them coming into Egypt as though he knew this was Joseph's heart all along, which means Joseph's talked about it. Joseph's talked about his desires for his family. We'll get to that in a minute. Genesis 45, uh, verse 16 is, is, is where all that is. And I guess in my outline, I get there a little quicker. But uh, it says, and the, frame, and the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house. We see Pharaoh's house heard it there in verse 3. Uh, in verse 16, it comes back around and they, they tell Pharaoh. And they say, Joseph's brethren are come. And it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. You might think that an old evil Egyptian Pharaoh probably wouldn't rejoice at such a thing. It, a few generations from now, they won't. As a matter of fact, they don't love having them there at all. Uh, they don't want them to continue to prosper or repopulate uh, by that time. But this Pharaoh's heard the heart of Joseph, and he's been given dreams of the Lord. And he's got this servant, Joseph, who's second in command seemingly the entire nation at this point, two years into the famine, by the way, the, the dearth years that Isaac taught us about, two years into it, and seemingly, there's prosperity again. Prosperity in a famine. Now, we're going to see some more evidence of it later, but in a famine, you would not expect good things at all. But in this famine, Jacob's sons are standing before Joseph. And in this famine, they come back again with Benjamin. And in this famine, they're going to come back again with Jacob. And we'll give you the number of the family in just a moment. In this famine, just two years in, Egypt's doing well enough that Pharaoh offers them everything. It's about a 900-mile piece of land, this Goshen that Joseph's about to mention. It's not a small piece of property on the back lot. It's enormous. And Pharaoh, not Joseph, Pharaoh says they'll eat of the fat of the land. They'll eat the good stuff. In other words, we're in the middle of a famine. 
Unless Isaac didn't teach it right, it's supposed to be bad. Isn't that what you taught? It's supposed to be rough. But God had a plan. Sunday we talked about if the Lord really is coming soon, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But God has a plan. See how it comes full circle? It should be hard. It should be rough. It shouldn't be delightful. God's judging sin. In the past week, we've seen earthquakes here, blizzards from one coast to the other, and a volcanic activity in Iceland. It's tough. There's tough things happening all around the globe. But God has a plan. Continuing in the text in verses 4 through 8, we read, And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. This is an invitation of sorts. And his brethren weren't so quick to respond to the invitation when he was younger and the deciphering these dreams that the Lord had gave him. But now, again, we've talked about the changes in Reuben and Judah all along the way as, as an expression of the change in all of the brethren, possibly, hopefully. And here we see they come near. Here we see that something has changed. Something's very different about these men than when they were 20 years ago leaving them in a dry pit. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. This phrase, preserve life, is also translated reviving. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years. This is the first time we're going to talk about it, but this is the first time we're told how far into the famine we were. I intentionally didn't give you that information we've been talking about it before. Only two years into the famine. And in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity. A posterity also is translated remnant or residue to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And yep, I'm going to give you that one too. That's also translated as escape. To provide for you a great escape. Hmm. This is God's plan. Remember what Jacob means, usurper? And all through Jacob's life, he illustrates that he wasn't actually usurping Esau at all. He was usurping God's plan. He was usurping or attempting to usurp the sovereignty of God time and time again. His mother had already been told by God the Father who was going to receive the blessing. She already knew God's will. It was handed to her by God Himself. And yet a plan is devised in which we've got to deceive Isaac to get this blessing, usurper. And here we see that God had planned a great, a great escape. He had planned for a remnant or a residue and he used Joseph to preserve life or to be as a reviving for Jacob, who, by the way, at the end of this chapter, goes from Jacob to Israel again. Verse 8, So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh. This is just a spiritual, uh, not guide, that sounds weird, a spiritual teacher, a spiritual instructor, somebody that can be as a spiritual father as Paul describes himself to, as being for Timothy. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1. And if you're flipping there, it's verses 8 through 11. But, but, but listen to it. Hear what Paul says here. He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence 
having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God has planned all along for a residue, for a remnant, for a posterity. And he has planned a great deliverance, a great escape. That very thing that we're leading up to in the study of the Lord's ministry. This great escape through the cursed cross. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what Brother Paul wrote here in relation to this moment in the life of the nation of Israel. So many will scoff that God the Father, in fact, does exercise a doctrine of election. And yet we do not see Esau's lineage outside the door waiting to talk to Joseph about what God has for them. What's the great escape for Esau's lineage? Is Ishmael waiting out there with the next servant to come in and receive the great escape, the plan for the residue for them? Now, they're, they're not wiped off the map. They come up again later in the Old Testament. But understand here, there's a significant blessing for the nation of Israel, and God planned that. God made it possible. God brought all these things to pass so that it could happen. The world will scoff at election. They don't like the very notion that one would be blessed and another cursed. But all were cursed. All were cursed. There's a significant difference this day for sure between the nation of Israel and Esau, the Edomites, the Ishmaelites, who've already, if you recall, as we started looking at Joseph, the Ishmaelites are already blending with other nations. If you recall, there's two different names that they give to the same people that Joseph was sold to. They were used, they were an instrument for this very providence, but they were not waiting outside Joseph's chambers for the blessing God had for them. He used Joseph for this express purpose according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. It was not merely the nation of Israel that was spared, beloved. A a greater than Jonah was there in the room too. Springing forth from the line of Judah, one day would be our Savior. The Savior for all the elect of God, Jew and Gentile alike. In that very room. We now find ourselves on the previously foretold timeline. There'd be seven years of plenty and seven years of dearth. We know now that we're two years into the seven years of dearth. And in retrospect, it's seemingly only just begun two years into a seven-year famine. Remember, it was likely to have been approximately 250 miles from Jacob to Joseph, which we had originally said to be about a three-week journey. And now you know why the map's up here. Over here, it's believed they would have been near Hebron. And Memphis is where we said Joseph's palace, where he was, would likely to have been. So this is, and you can tell, that's about 200 miles. About 250 or so miles. That's the journey that Jacob's sons have already taken three times, one way. In just a two-year period, their first trip in and back would have been uh, six weeks total plus three days in the hold. So we're looking at roughly 45 days tied up in that first journey into Egypt and then back after being in the hold three days. Their second trip back to Egypt, which took place 
After some time had passed, according to Genesis 43, verses 1 and 2, took them another three weeks back into Egypt. And then they start on the journey back when they're stopped by the servant who questions them about the silver cup, and they're brought back into Egypt again. So we're looking at almost 60 or so days of that two-year period of the dearth that's tied up and going back and forth and back and forth into Egypt. We can't account mathematically for every day in this, but at least we have an idea how far into the dearth they've already been traveling. Traveling, uh, as you know from going to Bible conferences, is expensive. It is cheaper to stay home. But in this case, everything over there on the other side of the Red Sea is starving, and everything over here has plenty because of the plan of God. I mean, we can look at this map minus the tear and see that it's very clear God had a direction for his people to go. And each time as we've tracked this journey, each time there was a drastic change in these brothers. Each time they made this journey, they were changed. Now, I wouldn't say by the journey, but by the experience of going in and out and going so near the plan of God. Isn't it fascinating to consider that the Lord, by Joseph's hand in the extenuating circumstances of the famine, had nursed the nation of Israel along for two years of this famine. This famine was much like the flood. It's not just here. It's here. There's nobody to barter with. Remember the text said Jacob had no, he had money, but there was nobody to barter with to get grain or meal or to eat. This is the only place to go. And yet the Lord had even more in store for them as he drew them nearer, nearer, nearer. He kept them alive for two years while they stayed over there. But there's even more waiting for them. And we're going to see that in the verses coming up. Before we get there, consider James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. I'm, I'm going to wear the New Testament out as we cover this chapter of Genesis. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. And you can see that in the, in the journey of these boys, especially in their interaction with daddy when they get back. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Remember Jacob, you've, all these things are against me. You've wiped out my entire lineage. All of my boys are dead. Remember when they were, went back the last time, that's how he greeted them, essentially. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your mourning and your joy. Now I skipped the whole thing. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. It was not going to be sufficient in the remaining famine, in the five years ahead of this dearth, it was not going to be sufficient for them to remain on that side. They had to come near. They had to come closer. I wonder, brethren, if we have an application to consider here based on our lives. Where are we at with God? I don't think it's reasonable for a pastor to expect the members to prepare as much as likely he has for the services. But there's a preparation to come and attend the services of God. Uh, and it goes beyond the ability to stay awake. But that's a preparation too. Have you prayed for the pastor? Have you prayed for the church? Have you prayed for the outreach? Have you prayed for the men who will pray here tonight? Have you prepared your heart? Have you gone over the previous chapters with the excitement of this is the chapter in which Joseph is revealed to his brethren? 
I hope the pastor doesn't mess this up. I need you to pray that way. I'm perfectly capable of messing it up. God gave cause for a Hebrew man to be a father or man of counsel to the Pharaoh of Egypt, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, who had proven themselves to be liars to the nation of Egypt just a generation or two before. Once we get down to verse 16 and beyond, we'll see God made for the enemies of this world to do far more than that for his chosen nation. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. Joseph says, Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me. The invitation again. Tarry not, now a warning. An invitation coupled with a warning. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen. Now there's a promise. An invitation, a warning, and a promise. This land of Goshen. Goshen literally means drawing near. So we see how I got the idea of how it wasn't going to be sufficient to stay over here for the next five years. They had to draw near. They had to move into a city that literally meant drawing near. God's saying something here, folks. Draw near. Draw nigh. Submit unto me. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you, James says. And thou shalt be near unto me, Joseph says, thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy, sh and thy herds and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. In other words, this do and live. And behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that ye have seen, and ye, have, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Come unto me. This is the invitation that Joseph gives. It's repeated again in verse 18, but that time it's repeated by Pharaoh. In this, we see the invitation of Christ as well. Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in that rest, we see that Jesus too will nourish thee, which is the promise Joseph makes to his brethren. <laughs> Goshen was a fertile region in, now, in northeastern Egypt. It was, like I said before, about 900 square miles. Now sure, by Exodus 1, it's too small, but here, it's enormous. And we'll talk about how many people are going to live on this plantation in just a moment. I wonder after the emotions and the tears and the embracing slowed down, just how many times they looked at one another and said, I, I just can't believe it. It's Joseph. That ought to be our Christianity, folks. I just can't believe it. God had a plan of reviving. God had a plan for a remnant, for a residue, for a little old church in Tulsa. God had a plan. I just can't believe it that though we enter into turmoil, God has a place for us to go back to. You think we haven't had a picture in the last few weeks? I just can't believe it how good our God is. It's okay for us to say that. That's not an unbelieving or an unfaithful statement to say. 
And after all the lions and tigers and bears, that's how good God is. We can still say, I just can't believe how good God is. Amen. That's glorifying to the Father. Again, Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He writes, Now unto him that is able, mm. he that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We teach a lot of history in church, don't we? My kids have heard from pulpits for years just how good and how wonderful God has been toward His people throughout the ages. What have we illustrated for them of today's workings on the behalf of His elect? Does He not still have a remnant of people? Is He not still very, very, very good? The, the impact of, of the story that Brother Thorne shared in Sunday school a couple months back about, I think it was the thresher that you went through. They were listening to a man who was living and breathing and standing right here telling them that story. And he told them of certain death, of excruciating pain, and of a great deliverer. You think that story didn't have an impact on my kids? On his grandkids? On his kids? On his siblings? Genesis going on here in verses 16 through 20. And we may finish this yet. We read, And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, which we quoted earlier, saying, Joseph's brethren are come. And it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. And when you read that, you just can't help but imagine Joseph's been talking about this for a while. Maybe, I don't want to think the worst of Joseph, but maybe he said, God is so good, he might just bring my brethren right to this house. Or maybe he said, God is so good, but I don't know if I'll ever see my brethren again. The circumstances that led, us to, led me to being here, I don't know if they'll ever meet my boys, ever meet my wife, ever be able to pronounce her name. Don't know if this will ever happen. But no matter what, Pharaoh knew this was Joseph's heart, that they would come and they would be here, that they would survive this famine. Imagine, we didn't talk about it much, but when Joseph was laying out the interpretation for Pharaoh's dream, we have to imagine that it was in the back of his mind, oh dear, what will happen to my father? What will happen to Benjamin? They're not here in Egypt, and God's made it clear in these dreams that this is the only safe place to be. Isn't it amazing that Joseph didn't have to send out scouts to find Jacob? Go to Canaan, find the, the rascaliest bunch there is. That's my family. Bring them on up here. Never had to do that. He trusted it to the Lord. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, This do ye, laid your, laid your beasts. This is Pharaoh talking. It's going to sound like Joseph, but this is Pharaoh. Laid your beasts and go. Get you unto the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come unto me. There's the invitation again, this time delivered by Pharaoh. And he also gives it with a promise. I will give you the good of the land of Egypt. And ye shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded. This is a commandment of Pharaoh. This do ye take you wagons. This is the first mention of wagons, by the way. It gives us the um, pretty rock-solid evidence that the Egyptians probably invented them. This is the first that's mentioned at all, though, right here in the Bible. 
uh, take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Also, regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. Leave your stuff behind. This doesn't even sound like a KJV translation. <laughs> Leave your stuff behind. Don't regard it. Pharaoh says, I've got you. This is not really Pharaoh, is it? It's God. God tells Joseph to say it. God tells Pharaoh to say it. What is he saying between these two? Come unto me. Come unto me. Draw nigh. Trouble's coming. Five more years of misery's coming. If I offered you five more years of misery or the recently remodeled guest bedroom, which would you choose? Probably the guest bedroom. You wouldn't choose five more years of misery. Boy, if it were four more years, that'd be some typology for 2024, wouldn't it? <laughs> Acts chapter 7. We've got to go there one more time at least. Verse 14. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, three score and fifteen souls. I don't like doing math in the pulpit. It's dangerous. But I reckon that's 75 people for 900 square miles of Goshen. Stephen had to tell us that, but he's still lecturing the nation of Israel for how many times they've rejected the goodness of God. See, even in the heart of this study, we think it's so obvious how good God is, but these are the Israelites. They've heard these stories their entire lives, and they say, in Stephen's time. But in Joseph's time, in this moment, would these brethren say, We've, we have been spoiled of God. He is so, can you believe how good he's been to us? Pharaoh even goes so far as to command that they get on up here into Egypt and live well. See the rejoicing of Pharaoh with Joseph over this reunion? Can, can not the world also benefit from joy God grants unto his people? Pharaoh is happy for Joseph. He's happy for God's people. Not only does Pharaoh offer over his own wagons, but he encourages them to leave all their stuff behind. They'd be provided the best of the land of Egypt. Come unto me and leave all else behind as an abode will be prepared for you. Amen. Remember that word mansions, John 14, verse 1 through 2. That place is being prepared for you. The word mansion is used. And the word mansion simply means abode. We're not living like uh, Trump and Gates up yonder. We're going to live better than that. But we're not living in giant houses. We're living in an abode prepared for us by God himself. And that's what Pharaoh's saying. We've got a wonderful place, 900 square miles all laid out. It's being prepared for you. Leave your stuff behind. Get in the wagon. Let's go. Verses 21 through 28 of our text. Oh, we're closing in on it. And the children of Israel did so. Thank the Lord they listened, huh? And Joseph gave them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh and gave them provision for the way. To all of them he gave each man changes of raiment, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. He's not testing anybody anymore, but this is the only other son of his mother. And to his father he sent after this manner, ten asses laden with good things of Egypt. And ten, and ten she-asses laden with corn and bread and meat for his father by the way. So he sent his brethren away, and they departed. And he said unto them, See that ye fall not 
out, by the way. I, I want to keep reading, but something stands out to me that I know is not in the outline. Joseph didn't give them enough provision in case they changed their mind and stayed. He gave them enough provision for the way. If God is telling us to get ye up and draw nigh unto him, he's liable to give us exactly what we need to make that trip. Not exactly what we need to linger. That's very important for today, beloved. He's going to give us what we need to draw nigh unto him if we are his. But he's not going to just give us enough to keep living up the life of luxury and pleasing this old man. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob, their father, and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived, and Israel said, It is enough. He's not Jacob anymore. There's the change. Israel said, It is enough. Yeah, that phrase comes up again later in the Bible too, doesn't it? Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Another three-week journey lie ahead of the brethren, but this time they carry amazing news and wagons of blessings. Also, instead of a warning to bring such and such in front of the Lord of Egypt or do not return, Joseph says, see that ye fall not out by the way. It's a solemn warning even for us today. Great blessings have been given, many more to come as treasures have been placed and prepared in such a place in which they cannot be diminished. See that ye fall not out by the way. Do ye sense the pressure, the responsibility in those words? Remember that silver cup, the will of God? There is responsibility there, a heavy responsibility. You've been given things you do not deserve. Remember your purpose. We tell our kids, uh, the eldest two anyway, whenever they go out someplace without us, and we've always told them this, remember whose you are. And we're not talking about you belong to Joe and you belong to Rebecca. We're talking about God. Remember whose you are. You have a silver cup in your sack, beloved. Remember whose will it is you have been entrusted with. That phrase, fall out, is more commonly translated, be troubled. See that ye uh, fall not out by the way, or see that you are not troubled. And it speaks more of an inner trouble, a sense of danger that Joseph's warning them about is their doubts and their fears. Because wherever you go, there you are. And this journey, three weeks in, three weeks back, they're going to be there with one another every step of the way. See that you fall not out by the way. It's the same warning to us. Be warned. Doubts and fears will set you back. They'll cost you. Fear not. Doubt not. Believe only, Jesus says. Consider Jacob carefully here as we seek to close this lesson. I don't believe for a moment that he accepted the truth of what his sons experienced in Egypt because of the wagons and the treasures. You remember when they left, What we, we saw a little bit of a change. Jacob went to Israel again. We saw a little bit of change in Israel. And he said, no, you can't take Benjamin. Leave me alone. Some time passed. They say it again. Look, we could have food. We could have been back by now. We could have been good. 
But I guess now we think about it, there's evidence of three more weeks. We could have been back by now. That's another three weeks. So that's six more weeks. The two years are starting to pan out pretty good. And Jacob says at that point, as Israel, a man of faith, that El Shaddai, the supreme God of the universe, he'll have to bless this. He prays, beloved, for the first time in chapters of Genesis, Israel prays. Do you remember what he was praying for? He's praying for his sons, the ones that he had accused a few verses earlier in that chapter of wiping out his entire family. And he prayed that the Lord would keep his boy Benjamin safe. Return him to me once more. He entrusted the supreme God to keep or preserve Benjamin. Not only had he done so, but he returned Joseph too. I have a very close friend that prays fervently for the safety of his young boy. His eldest has departed the family seemingly with worldly ambitions that have made him as a stranger to them. I long for the day in which my brother calls me and says not only has my God preserved my youngest son, but he's given me back my eldest as well. And Israel said it is enough. He didn't look at the wagons of gold and the, and the good things of Egypt. He looked at his youngest with the news that the oldest was still, uh, his older brother was still alive and said it's enough. I don't know that you've ever gone down the journey that my brother is on or that Jacob was on. But it frames up for you what means the most in life. And it's not what's in your wallet. It's not what you wrote here in. Can you imagine 